Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal with my co-host, the ever-genial Eagle One of Eagle Speak. And we're here today. It's Somewhere, Sal, you keep dropping <laughs> your speech. I, am I am I still dropping out? Well, you're, I can hear you now, but <laughs> well, uh, evidently I've been having some mic troubles that uh, we will hopefully not have too much. Um, but hey, we're going to jump right into it. Uh, if you're with us live, uh, you can go ahead and scroll down to the bottom of the show page. Stephen is there right now. He'll be glad to welcome you aboard. We'll monitor that during the course of the show. And if you have to run away or if you haven't already and you want to see what you've missed on MidRats, either this episode or previous ones, please go ahead and go over to iTunes or Spreaker or whatever I um, podcast aggregator you use, and you can subscribe to the free podcast. But I would, might as well just go ahead and roll into it. Uh, happy pre-Thanksgiving. There you go on. Uh, you too, Sal. Hope you have a well, nice big Christmas. turkey ready to go. Well, we're going to be uh, we're going to be traveling out of town, so we're going to outsource our cooking to somebody else. The things I will do to avoid doing the dish. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> that, that's part of. We'll be we'll be part of the, our carbon footprint by doing insane things like. It's okay. Uh, they'll be here for Christmas, so we're going to alternate in in that regard. Um, mentioned in some of the, the pre-show tweets, yes, Twitter still exists. Um, Thanksgiving dinner, sit around. So I was kind of thinking about that. Last week uh, when we had mid-rats, we, we talked about uh, a full hour uh, with Dirk and Claude about the results of the last election. And that means it's, it's been a while since we actually talked about some of the other issues that may come up in conversation as people get around the Thanksgiving table. And uh, I, I guess in some way I, I can roll something your way to put my cell phone report. Obviously, Ukraine is, is the top issue for folks. And one thing that I thought would happen 
uh, this summer never really materialized. And that was tremendous food supply issues uh, and food prices. And that could lead to civil unrest in many parts of the world because of the interruption of grain shipments from both Russia and Ukraine. And that hasn't happened. And um, you know, just just kind of curious, from, from your point of view, you know, what do you think are things that the international community and really the Ukrainians and the Russians and the Turks did that helped mitigate what really looked like in wait, late spring winter, early spring, could have been a huge international problem. Yeah, I think uh, first we have to salute the merchant marine people of various nations, at least the ships that are flying flags of various nations, who uh, were, were brave enough to go into the area to to, uh, to move grain cargoes out of Ukraine. Um, and, and we have to, to uh, recognize that Russia's it was in Russia's interest too to allow grain shipment, especially the the Ukrainian grain that they stole. Um, but you know there there was an agreement reached to allow some of the shipping to go out. Uh, U.S. grain shipments seem to be up internally too, so that helps with some of the matters. Uh, but you know a lot of it has to do with the fact that merchant ships were allowed in and out of of the uh, Ukrainian ports and. Uh, the Turks were, I think, very much a major player in getting that, helping that to happen. I think you're right, and there were some great open source intel out there where you could see right inside NATO territorial waters with the Romanians where you had a lot of merchant ships who were waiting for the go to go into especially Odessa and get loaded up. I know there's a uh, pre-war, I remember I just caught eye on it in, a, in an industry article, and I dug around a little bit of it in springtime. But a name most people will recognize, Cargill, a really nice state-of-the-art facility, I think uh, a little bit upriver or up the bay in Odessa, that uh, could really move a lot of grain. And, but they have lots of legacy ports as well. So a lot of that got out. I think that there were also probably a story we'll hear at some point. Maybe somebody who will will find these jewels. I and I have I haven't read anything about it. I I just haven't seen it. That doesn't mean it's not there. But in Canada and Australia major grain-producing nations to tap into their uh, excess supplies and other things in order to help mitigate some of the the price spikes that might be inconvenient to people who live in the West. But in places like Egypt, when the price of bread goes up, uh, bad things happen. So I think that's going to be a real interesting story to be told uh, both the, the merchant mariners from multiple nations and the companies that own their ships that were willing to put them in risk because especially early on there were floating mines uh, especially with the sinking of the Moskva the very fast and violent result of 
anti-ship cruise missiles and a lot of the generations of the missiles out there, they aren't discriminating. If you, when that seeker head pops on for most of those missiles of those generations, what is radar return, that's what it's going to go after. Uh, to mitigate that. Now, if the war keeps we used up all the slack in the system this year that may not be replete, repeated next year, no idea. Uh, but I think that was uh, what I saw as a potential really mm-hmm. and I think you, know, you, you rightfully identified those that really have the story, the, the ships that carried the grain, the cooperative nature of the Turks. And I also thought it was interesting that I guess the closest uh, comparison I can think of is once the grain convoy started moving, it was kind of like the penguins going off the ice shelf. Everybody rushed and everybody went together. It's like they can't take us all. Um, of course, nobody went after the, uh, the grain convoy. So that that saved a lot of people in parts of the world where they just don't have the you know, it's not a matter of having ticket shock at Publix. It's the fact that you just can't buy anything. So that that was one of the the good news things on the maritime front this year. But yeah, speaking of Ukraine, I remember years yeah. ago when I mentioned to my <laughs> illustrious wife about Ukraine, she's like, "Isn't that where Stalingrad was?" <laughs> I was like, "No, but it's close by. But we're coming into winter time there, and the war is." going. Uh, I guess we're about to, to have a modern reminder of what a winter war in uh, Eastern Europe is going to look like again. Yeah, and it's, you know, Putin is, is pulling out all the all the terrorist stops that you could to uh, to hurt a, a, a country that's going to be severely affected by a cold winter. You know, I think already 10, 10 million people don't have power out of a population of of uh, 40x plus million people, you know, and 25% of people are already without power, and he's continuing his his uh, missile surge. Uh, that's not a good thing. And uh, the a lot of the pundits are saying that one of the reasons he's doing this, he's trying to buy time until the ground freezes so he can send uh, masses of tanks into Ukraine and, and fight them that way. But uh, we'll see. We've got... Uh, all kinds of issues you know, with the uh, the Ukrainians continuing to to use their or at least advance the idea of U.S. Uh, unmanned surface vessels to uh, to go ahead. All right, I see we have a guest caller who we're going to put on the air. Go right ahead. Yes, we do. I, I was just glad that somebody is taking us up on the offer. When we say we have open phones, we mean it. Area code two four zero. Good afternoon and welcome to Midrats. Hey Sal, hey Eagle, how you doing today? Oh, we're hanging in there. How about yourself? Uh, it's a it is a beautiful day uh, wherever anyone is listening to uh, to uh, to Midrats. Say hey, thanks for uh, for uh, for letting me on. So I was uh, 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 I guess at some point. So I was listening to your discussion on Ukraine and and at least what I'm expecting around the Thanksgiving table, because the question that, that, uh, that people ask me is, you know, how is this thing going to end? Can it end? 
Um, and I, I've been given that some thought. Uh, I don't know if you guys have given it some thought, but in my mind, the key problem here is that any deal that Ukraine might make with Russia to end the war has the problem that Russia has now set up multiple examples of they haven't honored their past deals. Why would they honor this one? That is spot on is, you know, you have to have trust and you have to have the ability to go, is this just, is this peace or is this a temporary lull so people can rearm and get ready again? And two things keep coming to mind is going back to the 1990s when uh, the, I think it was the Budapest Memorandum, where the Ukrainians agreed to... exactly where I was going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they agreed to get rid of their nuclear weapons in exchange for territorial integrity, and of course the U.S., Britain, and and a few, few other nations signed on the bottom lines, and that turned out to be not what it was printed on. And I think you add it to the fact that, um, especially in the beginning, the Russians were very clear that this was a war of conquest, a war of elimination. And the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians have seen this before from both the Russians Sal seems to be continuing to have trouble with his microphone. Oh, he is. Right. He seems to be cutting in and out. Yeah. Well, uh, Mark, I think, you're, I, I think your point is well made. And, and one of the questions, I mean, I'm sitting here thinking, well, what have we done in the past? We've got a country invading somebody else. We, we've tended to throw U.N. peacekeepers in the middle of that and, and try and keep them apart. But I don't see that as a, as a viable uh, concept no. in and, this. Uh, and so – and, and – Historically, and so Ukraine has the clear international law claim to Crimea and to Donbass uh, and to Lachans, uh under the principle of, of, of Udi Patatetis, the you know, fancy Latin word for you know, when a country breaks up and you create new countries, you keep the borders that are in place and then you negotiate. Uh, but whenever you establish a new country, you don't start drawing new borders or any time a country would be created or would be subsumed, you would then be in forever border wars. That being said, Crimea and Donbass historically are mostly populated by Russian-speaking people who are ethnically Russian. They're, they're, they're more part of Russia than Ukraine historically. And I think that there would be if it would end the fighting, you could get to a compromise of what parts that had been Ukrainian are would become part of either independent republics or would become outright parts of the Russian Federation. The problem is there's no reason the Ukrainians would ever trust the Russians again to not go back on a second Budapest Accord uh, And the only way is I was, and I'm not suggesting that this makes good international policy, but would the Ukrainians and the Russians reverse the trade of Budapest? Would they say, okay, we're going to let Russia annex Crimea and 
and uh, the Donbass, uh, and in turn, we're going to give Ukraine back their nuclear weapons so that this doesn't happen again. Uh, I think that uh, most people in the world would probably recoil from that, but this would be, in my mind, at least one situation where something has to happen in order to give the Ukraine uh, the ability to create an unacceptable deterrence in the minds of the Russians going forward, that the Ukrainians would trust to do that for them to be willing to end the this conflict with any territorial concessions at all, because otherwise then all you've done is is bought yourself a couple of years of peace until Putin is at it again. I, I think that's a good point. I think uh, although, you know, we always with nu- with the nuclear weapons, the issue always is, are you going to use them on your own territory? I mean, you know, that's one of those like during the Korean War, one of the reasons apparently we got into that mess was we were so reliant on those that you know a conventional war was kind of thought not to be possible. Well, we got we got fooled by that, and I'm not I'm not sure the Ukrainians would would nuke themselves or, or their closest neighbor to uh, to solve the problem. But then you know it's got to be a legitimate threat. So, so that that's yeah the. Uh, I don't know that they would, and I hope that they wouldn't, but if we play the counterfactual, if Ukraine had not gotten rid of its nuclear weapons, would Putin have invaded in either 2014 or 2022? Would he have invaded a nuclear-armed Ukraine? Good question. Sal, I see you're back. Yeah, I Hopefully uh, that fixed the problem, uh, the old Raytheon reset, shut down and restart. Uh, how am I sounding so far? Loud and clear. Sound good. Yeah. Oh, great. Um, and, and I did catch a little bit of, um, of the tail end, and I think the, the, the nuclear question would, would have Putin have stepped forward. Um, I, uh, yeah, that, that is the million-dollar question. One thing I'd be interested in asking you, Mark, is um, let's look down the road here, and there's all sorts of assumptions that you have to have a check block on here. But once this war is over, and if you assume that Ukraine, let's just make an assumption that Ukraine gets its territorial integrity back, what, what is next for a nation like Ukraine that the economic data for that nation before the war. It's incredibly poor on both a per capita and overall basis has a huge issue with corruption, but it's a tough neighborhood. You know, and I think Poland is kind of pointing the way, but I think the, the period of spending money and having a military posture in line with Spain and Portugal isn't an option for a nation like Ukraine because Russia, Russia is Russia. She's eternal. She will always be what she is. So is Ukraine going to have to look at being a, not a permanently armed state, but a state with a military posture on par with, Switzerland and the direction Poland is going in to make it such that if when Russia comes back, whether it's in five years, 15 or 50 or 100, and she will come back, that she's less of an attractive target that some 
general staff group can produce an O plan that says, you know, Mr. President, we can take her in 72 hours if we do it this way. Yeah, uh, I think I would broaden that to being greater than than the Ukraine um, or Ukraine. I keep referring to it as the Ukraine. Uh, I, I think that that that's true. Uh, and and in, uh, the Ukraine itself has tremendous potential. It's the breadbasket of Europe. It, it's got you know, all the fertile farmland that people know about. The other thing that was interesting, uh, and I know this based on you know, the worldwide supply chain, uh, Ukraine provides a lot of the steel that Europe uses for its heavy industry. And so Ukraine is not without the resources and the capability and the human capital to recreate a reasonable and vibrant and sustaining economy for its people. Um, it would do well to, to root out its corruption, and that's something that the, that the people have to work themselves. And it would do well to, to modernize its economy, but I think they have every capability of doing that. Going forward, not just the Ukraine, but everyone who thought that either the bipolar world of the Cold War or the rules-based order of the post-Cold War would allow nations to not invest in their own self-defense. Those days are over, not just for Ukraine, but for everyone. No one is coming to anyone's rescue. There's still going to be alliances because alliances make sense, but alliances are only as good as both parties in the alliance or all parties in a multilateral alliance actually believe that the alliance works for them and that they're all fighting for something that is in each of the members of the alliance vital national interest. So if you are a, uh, if you, and, uh, and uh, for those who, uh, um, uh, you know that I'm uh, a huge David Weber fan, uh, and uh, I've, I've talked about this on other podcasts, you know, in his science fiction book, is one of the more recent ones, uh, Uncompromising Honor, a planet gets, uh, uh, gets attacked, uh, and it was more or less minding its own business, but the bigger star federation decided they needed to make an example of it, and the planet was there saying, wait a minute, I have treaty allies. I have, you know, I'm part of this, this big federation, and, 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 and you can't do this. And it turns out when push came to shove, there was no one there to help them, uh, and, uh, and, and the bully got to them. Uh, and that was a work of science fiction, but in real life, that's the way the world works going forward. So whether it's Ukraine or anyone else, nations need to invest in their own defense to the extent that they are an unattractive target to any potential predators. Uh, and that may be a drain on economic efficiency, but that's just the way the world works. And nations that don't do that are going to end up paying the price, whether that's Ukraine or any other nation. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll roll you over to, to Eagle One in a second, but I want to have a follow-on question for you because you, you, you tickled one of my ribs here. Is you, know, you said nobody is coming for you. Uh, still there, Sal? Oh, Sal. Yeah. 
I think I think you make a good point, Mark. You're, the question, you know, I, there is that that uh, porcupine strategy, right? You want to be. It's not that you you want to fight anybody, but you sure want to be un, unattractive if somebody decides to fight you. Exactly. I'm not arguing that everyone needs to be able to wage their own wars of aggression, uh, and different parts of the world are different. Um, you know, and the uh, uh, you know if I want to make an analogy to college football, if you want a winning football team uh, and you play football in you know the Pac-12, okay, you can you can have a, a, a better than 500 record with a certain level of, of football team. Uh, if you take that same football team into the SEC, you're not going to win any games, and you're going to get creamed all the time. So if you want to play football in the SEC. Uh, either you're going to get creamed a lot or you have to up your game so you're at least so that the Alabamas and Georgias and LSUs of the world have to take you seriously week in and week out. Um, and, uh, and as a Gator fan, I'm getting frustrated because too many teams have caught on to that. And it used to be, well, it would always be easy to beat a Vanderbilt or a Missouri uh, or a Kentucky. Uh, and now everyone's up to their game that it's not easy to beat anyone. Uh, in the world of college football that creates a lot of fun Saturday afternoons while we all watch exciting games uh, in the world of, of diplomacy uh, and a military balance of power. Hopefully when you live in a dangerous neighborhood, you have to be ready to, to play at a high level so that you don't end up in conflict. Yeah. As a, as a uh, UNC Tar Heel fan, uh, football and, and watching the Georgia Tech game yesterday, you have to take everybody seriously all the time. And I appreciate that anal- analogy. Um, but, you know, it, it also applies to Taiwan. I mean, we're, right. we act like Taiwan, Taiwan taking care of itself enough that it is a porcupine or is it just, is it uh, one of those issues that we're going to have to, they're going to look to Uncle Sam to come bail them out if, they, if it gets, push comes to shove. So Taiwan is an interesting case. There's, there's a couple of different schools of thought among Taiwanese leadership, uh, and it'll be interesting how that develops over the short and medium term. Uh, I think there's pretty much consensus, in my opinion, outsider looking in and by no means an expert, uh, Taiwanese society, that, that they have a problem and they need to do something about it. Uh, the problem is... Uh, what the something that you do about it is. Uh, I am concerned that there's a strong level of thought within the, uh, the Taiwanese leadership that perceives deterrence as being overly symmetric. So the People's Republic of China has airplanes and ships. We have to go have some airplanes and ships to counter them. Uh, that's a losing battle for Taiwan uh, because the, the People's Republic of China is just so much bigger uh, and, and that's not going to really help them. Uh, what they need is, like you used the, the, the analogy that, that a lot of people like to use, the porcupine, what they need is asymmetric capability that makes it unpleasant for the People's Republic of China to try and occupy, govern, and maintain the island of Taiwan such that the, the, the PRC decides it's not worth the pro- it's not not worth the uh, the, the effort. Uh, the uh, but you, uh, I was listening to a podcast uh, with uh, General McMaster, 
recently uh, that he did on uh, with Barry Weiss, and he made an excellent point, as General McMaster often does, uh, that war is more than just rational calculation, that you can't underestimate concepts like pride and honor and ideology when it comes to war, and that's another factor for both the Russians in, U- in Ukraine and potentially the, the PRC as it views Taiwan, whether or not an action is rational. There are times that decision makers will put non-rational factors like honor, like history, uh, like ideology ahead of a purely cost-benefit analysis. And people have to plan for that too and realize that a leader is not always going to make a rational decision. Yeah, and I've I have changed my primary communication path, so hopefully I won't break up anymore. In uh, that, Sal said he wouldn't break up anymore, little... and then started to break up. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that didn't last very long, did it? So my, my secondary path isn't working either. <laughs> you started to break up there a little bit. Now you sound fine, but you started to break up there a little bit. Okay, okay. Well, well I'll, I'll talk. I'll be a fast-talking Southerner then. But it, it, it ties into what I wanted to ask you. You know, you, you went through your Weber's latest book scenario, and when we look at China, and one thing that Ukraine's been lucky with is the fact that they have gotten a lot of help from the United States and others that they've been able to keep fighting, even though their inventories disappeared really, really fast. And kind of uh, what we talked about earlier on, there will be a nice book written about what was done throughout the world to keep them supplied. But, you know, looking at ourselves in the mirror here, and you're talking about a Taiwan and a Westpac situation, is I've seen here and there an appreciation of the fact that we need to look really hard just at our industrial capacity to in the face of a growing threat. But what we have available in war stocks in case, you know, so we have a leader at some point down the road who's briefed that this will be a 72-hour or a 72-day conflict or month 72 down the road. Uh, do you think inside the U.S., are there people looking harder at that challenge from both an industrial capacity to flex point of view, but also just do we have the magazine depth that we need with the right weapons if, if 2027 is your go time? So if 2027 is your go time, effort and discipline, uh, I think – you can get there with magazine depth. Uh, but the, the challenge is great, uh, and uh, the picture is not always pretty. Uh, everywhere in our supply chain and everywhere in our industrial base, and I say this, obviously the industrial base I know best is, is shipbuilding and ship repair, but across all of our military industrial base, uh, we have limitations both in facilities and in available uh, uh, manpower resources. 
gives us an upper limit of how much you can accelerate. And I really think you, you know, in the next few years, um, you, uh, uh, you know, you're going to, the, the department uh, is going to have to make choices on what it chooses to ramp, ramp up first, just because you can't ramp up everything at once. Uh, there's not an, not an industrial base, and frankly, there's not a labor base for it. Uh, the, uh, the other thing that I would say that I thought where I thought you were going uh, is in Ukraine, the West, in its support of Ukraine, has had relatively uncomplicated supply lines of communication. Uh, the, uh, should there be an open war over Taiwan, the lines of communication will be anything but uh, uncomplicated. They may very well be the most challenging lines of communication ever seen in the history of warfare. Uh, and I think there's an appreciation of that amongst a certain class of defense intellectual and military planner, but I have yet to see meaningful action taken to address that. Yeah, that's, that's you know, uh, Brian McGrath had a, a pretty interesting uh, tweet, uh, what do they call them, chain? Uh, threat. Based I, on I a threat. Based, yes. based, yeah, threat. There you go. Based on that uh, uh, Navy Times article that points out that, you know, a lot, of, and, and his thread and some comments that were made on it were really good. You know, we got to this this situation, I think we were arrogant enough to believe that, that we were going to be king of the hill for a long time and it didn't really matter. Peace had broken out and we went to a lot of business type just in time things and all that. And, you know, 20 years down the road, all of a sudden you're paying the price for not having all the stuff, tools you might need if things really went south. And I, a few times I've driven through the Midwest and, and around North Platte, Nebraska, and places like that, and there are these huge old ammo dumps, uh, concrete buildings meant to hold munitions, you know, and, and I know those are uh, North Platte or wherever it is, is not, is not the only place that has those, but I, we have a lot of very empty vaults now. And, uh, it, you know, what, what would it take if we just concentrated on getting, uh, you know, six-month supply of stuff? What, is that too, uh, too short-term thinking? Can we train people to do this stuff? Can we, do we have the industrial base to, to ramp up to that level six months in, in, in a two-year period? You know, I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. That's what, that's what I'll tell you. So I don't want to even speculate. Uh, and different types of munitions in a Indo-PACOM uh, theater, you'd give different priorities to. So, I mean, the the production of of, of explosive shells for for naval artillery uh, would not be nearly as high a priority as increasing things like uh, long-range anti-surface missiles, uh, long-range surface-to-air missiles, uh, high-performance. Uh, torpedoes, uh, you know, high-performance sea-launched cruise missiles. Those would be the, uh, you know, those would, those would be, the question is how quickly could you build up capability like that or at least munition stock uh, like that? And uh, I'm not sure I would, uh, I wouldn't offer a guess as to how many years it would take us to greatly expand our current production process because I don't know. Uh, so that would be the, 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 the question. But that's, 
you know, that would be in my mind priority number one, uh, and then the you know the other priorities uh, you know come after after that. The other thing I would say, and you you mentioned you know the ammunition dumps you know littered across the uh, the the plains. One of the things, one of the impressions that I learned, or lessons that I learned from my year on the National Security Council staff is that in the age of space and cyber, there isn't a here and a there anymore. Any conflict is potentially global at any moment. Uh, the, uh, you might not have a tank rolling uh, in a field outside your house, but that doesn't mean that there can't be real-world effects by a, an aggressor that can be felt anywhere in the world that that aggressor wants to produce effects that could occur anywhere in the world. So the idea that you have a homeland defense and then you have an overseas defense is a false dichotomy in the 21st century. The, the whole world is one place. Yeah, I agree with you. Everything is fair game. And frankly, I've been a little bit um, – uh, that the Ukrainians in this regard have shown the level of restraint we don't know about and won't know about for a long time. Um, everything is fair game, especially if you're going to go for a, a global conflict. And we're being selfish with your time. You called in, probably thought we'd keep you for a minute or two. But uh, I, I wanted to ask you a question about industry. And that sure. is, you know, as we're talking about preparing, is – one of the things that people got religion on fairly fast in the last year is in the CHIPS Act came into play. But there are other parts of whether it's, it's, it's hardware, whether it's electronics, whether it's just raw material that in case of a large conflict, our military capacity will rely on that we may not have sovereign control over. And in Mark's world, if he had two or three things he would really like for people to pay attention to making sure that we get that capability or that resource in our grasp vice relying on, uh, as you described, uh, very challenging lines of communication. What are those other items besides chips that uh, would be in your scan? So you said Mark's world, uh, so I'm going to go with my view of the larger world because in my in my narrow world of what I care about, uh, I need you know steel and electrical cable, <laughs> the two things that I I, I, I live and die by. Uh, but uh, the uh, broader national capability, uh, the in addition to chips which are critical, I think the ability to fabricate uh, uh, engines of all sizes. Uh, so, you know, if you think about, you know, whether that's something big for a ship, small, mid-size for an aircraft, uh, smaller for a missile, uh, you know, the, but the, the ability of, to, to produce those engines uh, in many cases is a limiting factor in how fast you can ramp up production. So you got to be able to have engine capacity across a lot of sizes of engine and then all the things that feed into that, which is, uh, you know, the 
electronics are ubiquitous, but then there's also specialty metals, um, you know, and and forging and fabrication that goes into those those engines. That's that's the first thing that comes to mind as you uh, uh, ask that question because it's going to affect your ability to ramp up over a large range of potential military capabilities. Uh, I know uh, you and I have a special love of ships and shipbuilding, uh, and that's all well and good, and I agree uh, and would be prepared to argue on the importance of a large, robust, and properly maintained Navy as a part of U.S. military posture. But another lesson I learned uh, having been an acquisition guy going on to the National Security Council staff was the importance of every component of military power and, in many cases, the other parts of national power, diplomatic, information, economic. But in a conflict, in order to create effects, no one piece of military power uh, is able to do it by itself in the modern world. Uh, David Deptula's love of air power notwithstanding, uh, you can't do things with just air, just ground, just space, just naval, but you have to be able to tie those together effectively in order to create effects. And so in a challenging environment where you have a, a large, aggressive, well-armed, well-financed, uh, and well-trained uh, adversary, uh, and no one should have any illusions that the People's Republic of China is not all those things. They are well-trained, well-armed, well-financed, well-resourced, well-planned. Um, the, uh, you know, you've got to be able to create effects across your full spectrum of capabilities. So that's one of the reasons why I went with engines. Uh, just in general, that encompasses the ability to service land, sea, and air in different ways. And it's a capability that I'm unsure if we would have the ability to ramp up at speed in a near crisis. The other thing is I would, I would say that the crisis is upon us. We just don't know the date of the, uh, of the event. So the sooner we start ramping up, the better. Yeah, excellent point. I think one of the recurring themes I hear from a lot of people out in the fleet now is that the, it's not just the big issues, it's the tiny small parts. They're not able to get the, uh, you know, the, the supply chain has gone very much just in time and sometimes just in time is is not exactly just in time. It's it's late. I don't think COVID did us a lot of favors in that line, but it's an, it's an issue that, that they're having to struggle with out in the fleet. I don't know where, where Sal has gone this time. That's, I'm waiting for Sal to chip in. <laughs> Me too. I, I'm 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 well, trying. I'm trying as hard as I can. <laughs> well, it's an interesting problem that he's got. I, apparently, a black hole has descended over over his hometown, and we will find out. I get, uh, can I you hang I can around? You a, can you hang around all, a little bit longer? Oh, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm I like your, your point your about uh, I like your point about the 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 need for our combined forces. I noticed that the the Air Force and the Navy are both saying that they're underfunded and that we're gonna you know how that how that's gonna work. And we can we can we ramp up both the Navy and the and the Air Force sufficiently that that we're a 
coherent uh, threat? I actually worry less about the funding because the funding is just a matter of national will. But if the the you know, we proved during COVID that in a pinch you can spend money if you feel like you really need to, uh, and and you you'll have negative effects on your economy uh, as perhaps we're seeing now. But in a, if you're if you really think that you're in a crisis, you can spend the money. Uh, in COVID. The question was, you know, for all the certainly at the beginning of COVID, and this is a probably a good analogy. The beginning of the COVID ap- ap- epidemic, we had plenty of money. What we didn't have were gloves, masks, and gowns. And it turns out that you can't make gloves, masks, and gowns out of money. You actually need material to do that, and they couldn't just magically appear. And it took. We had been importing most of those, and suddenly the whole world wants what's left. Uh, and it took several months before a sufficient ability to make things like gloves, masks, and gowns was recreated in the United States uh, that that stabilized that situation. Uh, the The same is true in uh, in, in military capability. As a matter of national will, if the Congress was willing to spend more money on defense across the entire defense spectrum, they could simply appropriate more money, and I hope that they do. Um, But even if they did, there's a limit to what you can do with the national capability you have until you create more national capability. And that gets into things like, how many young people can you convince to go into things like shipbuilding and ship repair or aircraft manufacture or working in an engine factory or, you know, building that, that chip factory and getting people to work in the clean rooms there. All of, all of those are questions that, uh, that limit how fast you can ramp up far more than just can we spend more money on it. Spending, spending money is necessary, but it is not a sufficient component. So, that's that is the the worry that I have. I've uh, I've tried a tertiary communications path this time, so maybe maybe uh, maybe this will work. Hopefully, you can hear me. Okay, sounds now. good now. Yeah, sounds good now. Okay. Well, hey, I, you you mentioned something that yeah, you know, it's I think we're all can be a little more comfortable talking about machines and material and things like that but at the end of the day it's people that matter and i i know you are a proud graduate of the united states naval academy and there's a few articles that came out recently not specifically about the naval academy but it involves the 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 additional challenge that we've seen since in the last year especially but really since covid hit where the Academy had 29% reduction in applications. The Naval Academy had a 20% reduction in applications. The um, West Point only had 10%, uh, which is in line with what you see in some civilian institutions. And on the enlisted side of the house, it used to be that 30 to 40% of people who'd want to enlist get knocked out within the first 48 hours of consideration for a variety of issues, whether it's health, obesity, drug use, criminal use. But in the last year, that's jumped up to 70%. 
So that that that's a, I, in my mind would be a flashing red light about not just the intellectual capability of our 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 future leaders, but just a numbers game of being able to bring enough people in the military that without lowering standards. And I don't know whether you've had a chance to think about that, or maybe this is something at the Naval Academy that uh, the alumni have talked about a bit, but do you have any thoughts about, you know, what are some of those things that perhaps are within the control? Ultimately, the military can't control high school education or anything, but are there some things that you think maybe internally we could look at to make sure this doesn't become a multi-year problem that's going to compound? Yeah, so the the short answer in no particular order. Uh, one, uh, you should, for that's a whole episode in and of itself, and you should get someone on who is much more expert in me than me or as far as issues of military manning. Uh, get the current N1 or uh, my old boss from uh, – from uh, when I was a divo, my old department had John Nowell, who was the previous N1 and is now uh, living a, uh, a the life of a retired three-star, uh, but you know, and is an all-around great guy. But get someone who has really worried about people issues across the entire spectrum: officer uh, recruitment and uh, ascension, enlisted recruitment and training. Uh, you know, and, and looked at those trends and understand those problems. When I talked to senior leaders, they acknowledged that they have a problem, and I think they're trying to bound how long a problem and how much of a problem it is across both officer and enlisted manning across all the services. Because uh, I hear that from leaders, but that's not my area of expertise, so I'm not sure I would hazard a, oh, I have the, the solution or the thought. But that is absolutely a a concern and it's the concern that is mirrored by industry it's if it's hard to get sailors then it's hard to get people to work in shipyards it's hard to get people to fix airplanes it's hard to get people to build airplanes there's a there's a need for qualified people and that's going to be a challenge uh, in pretty much every endeavor going forward and you know you could there are a lot of smart people working at it. I hear them talk about it, but at least on the on the military recruitment education side uh, i would I would urge you to pick a pick a Sunday and talk to someone who's smarter than I am on that issue yeah, I think in some ways that's a global issue and this this is you know closer to one of your concerns in a in a separate conversation. I remember you saying. Somebody asks you, you know, what what do you want more than anything right now? And you're like, I would like a hundred hundred welders. Um, that, I still want a hundred welders. There was, a, <laughs> and there was a a video that the Russians put out a couple months ago where they were refurbishing their tanks. And when you looked at their work, of course, the demographics in Russia and also Ukraine is just a horror show to begin with. But when you looked at the workforce that they had there, they were guys my age and older, I think there may have been one person in the background who was under 40, and, and that individual was in his, his mid to upper 30s. And uh, that's 
that is an ongoing challenge. You have it in your particular sector. We, we have it in some ways uh, in the military, though we can, we can force people to get trained in, in areas that we have to. But I talk to people locally here um, that, that work in the different parts of the maritime industry. But um, I also talk to people that are in fabrication. And uh, I think it goes back to um, maybe there is something in our national discussion that there's been something in our educational system in the last few decades that, if not from a monetary point of view, at least from an exposure point of view, haven't pushed people in the right direction to be least be able to know what op- opportunities and options are out there. Um, you, know, you, you know this P&L better than I do, but if you are a quality, qualified welder who knows how to show up at work on time, you're going to make good money, um, a lot more so, money than a lot of these people that are going to going to school. So a fully qualified welder, uh, and I, I know this, and, and I'm not uh, – this is public information, so I feel fine sharing it with you. Uh, I was giving a talk, and uh, one of the people that was at the talk uh, happened to be the district attorney for Marinette County, Wisconsin. Uh, and she has a problem finding – uh, attorneys to be a line prosecutor. Now, to be a uh, a first line prosecutor in, and an assistant district attorney in Marinette County, Wisconsin, like anywhere else in the United States, uh, you would have to be at a minimum admitted to the bar in Wisconsin uh, with a license to practice law, which means you need a four year college degree, um, a a JD degree from an accredited law school, and then having sat for and passed the Wisconsin state bar exam, and then you could be qualified for this job. If you were qualified for that job, which would be a minimum of seven to eight years after high school, uh, you could then take that job and be making less than uh, my highest grade of welder uh, in Marinette, which if a high school student comes, works for me uh, coming out of high school, they could probably attain that. Uh, within four years, uh, and they would have no student debt. Uh, in fact, all the training they need uh, would be paid for them, uh, either by by the company or by the state of Wisconsin, uh, and they would be debt-free and making more uh, a few years before than someone who had just graduated from law school and was working for the district attorney here in Marinette. Um, so, yeah, so there's there are careers to be had in the manual trade. I'm worried that it's not a matter of desirability of career, uh, although that might have a factor in it. I'm worried that we're facing a demographic problem. Uh, there was a good book a few years ago, and I can't remember the name of the writer. Uh, someone can look it up, What to Expect When No One's Expecting. Uh, and it looked at demographic trends in the United States, and I'm worried that we just are about to see that we don't have enough 20-year-olds in this country, because uh, 20 years ago, we didn't have people who weren't having enough kids. Yeah, that would have been serious Jonathan, issue. Jonathan Lass. <laughs> yes, Jonathan Lass. That's right. Good book. We're still worth reading. That's a serious issue. I mean, I, I took, I have, I have a couple of old MGs I work on, and I took a welding course at the local community college, and I was surprised to see how few, or, or maybe I should have been said, turned around, how how many young people were taking this introductory to, course to welding 
but to find out what you know they didn't know anything about it they 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 took it because they thought they might might be interesting uh but they you know nobody had taught them or told them when they were in high school apparently uh and i don't know if we don't have auto shop classes anymore or what but you know that you can make good money doing a lot of these manual trays i mean i, I don't I, mean, I don't know if you've had a, a, a plumber come to your house recently, but uh, I'd like to, even as a lawyer, I'd like to make the money some of those guys are making. They do have, and I will tell you, they do have shop class here in Wisconsin. I, by, by, my shipyard recruits from there. So. Sound has gone off to Never Never Land again. Um, yeah, well, uh I think we better let you go, Mark, because we've okay. taken up a lot of your time. <laughs> uh, I feel like I've dominated your, your your show, which I apologize for, but it's always great talking to the two of you. And I, I saw the list of things you thought you'd be talking about when I heard Ukraine. I said, oh, let me call in and offer a, a thought. But uh, but I was always glad to, to spend the time. I hope Sal, you, and, uh, and Eagle both have a, a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday with your family. Thank you. You too. Yes, sir. You too. Been a great, and Sal, great I'm going to be, I'm gonna be sh- I'm going to be shooting you a DM separately on a separate topic here in a minute. So I'll give you the heads up now. You'll see that coming at your, uh, at your DM line. So, all right, take care. Dana, bye. All right, bye. You too. Well, all right, now we want to talk about, <laughs> are, are you back? <laughs> I, well, you know, great, great thing. And, and, you know, we've had Mark on as a, as a guest before. We'll have to warn him. Hey, if you call in, we might keep you for 45 minutes because, uh, he's such a, a great conversationalist and, uh, it's always a blessing to have a chance to, 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 to talk to somebody who is so willing to, uh, to dive into some, some, some hard issues. And yeah, he, I'm, I'm going to, we should probably get somebody on to talk about manpower. And I think I want to take him up on uh, seeing if we can get a, the, the, a former N1 in here who is enjoying his, his, his retirement days. Because uh, I know somebody who invests that much time and that much effort into that topic, um, and all of us who have, have served the Navy, we all know that if you don't keep a steady pipeline of great people, both enlisted and officers coming in, um, you're in trouble. Because you've and it's not just the numbers; is when you have 20% fewer people apply that means you have fewer opportunities to grab those diamonds in a rough or to be able really to uh, be in the crunch. If you're in the crunch, it's a horrible place to be. But when you're trying to select the best quality people, when you look up at the wall and you go, okay, we've got eight eight billets to fill. I've got 20 people up there. They're all equally good. It's hard to do, but that's a great situation for the Navy to be in because then you know that, that – if everything else is done right, at least we have the right people in place. So, yeah, that 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 is probably a show that uh, we'll see what we can work on here. Uh, you know, one of the yeah. one of the topics. Let me toss it there. One one of the other problems we have in recruiting people to work in shipyards, for example, is the inconsistency with with which we've funded our shipbuilding process. You know, this continuing resolution nonsense and not having the funding so that things get canceled. I mean, same thing with all the military uh, major procurement programs. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, you've got to con- be 
uh, long term about it so that people know that if they get their their welding certificate they'll be employed doing that work that they've been trying to do for quite a while rather than oh yeah well we don't need welders go on home yeah and I, I think that's combined with the fact that uh, for instance you know my generation and uh, was raised on Billy Joel and Bruce Springsteen talking about how horrible it was working in heavy industry. Uh, and we were young kids during the deindustrialization that took place from the late 60s through the early 1980s. And that's not true anymore. So I think um, that might be part of it. Why well, don't want my kid to be a welder because I don't want Bruce Springsteen to write a song about him type of thing. When you know that was then, not now. Situations very, very different for for talented young men and women who don't want to get a degree in gender studies and would like to actually make a living. And especially those that have an artistic bent. Uh, you talk to maybe we can get Elaine Luria to come on one day to talk about how how exacting the nuclear power industry is. <laughs> Forget politics. We need to talk nukes with her. Um, it, it, that that you yeah, need somebody who has. Yeah, we saw the same thing in the oil patch. I mean, and we're seeing it again. I mean, we, you know, we get these great roughnecks. These guys are really hardworking. It's tremendously difficult, dangerous work, uh, whether it's offshore or onshore. And, uh, you know, and then we decide, oh, we don't, you know, we're going to cut back production from our domestic fields. You know, these these guys want to have a career. They want to be able to make a living doing what they're doing, and they do it really well. And, and you know, you're not one of those jobs you're probably going to do when you're, when you're 60. Uh, but, you know, but you can move up in the organization and be, you know, one of the supervisors or a boss of a rig or whatever. So, you know, that it's the short-sightedness sometimes that just drives me insane with with how we treat our young people who are looking for something useful to do with their lives. Yeah, I that's it's heartbreaking too, especially when you know how it's happened to to some people. But uh, hey, we have used up an hour, and before I have to go on to my fourth communications path, I guess we ought to wish everybody a, a happy Thanksgiving and and head on out for the day. It's, it's been a great hour, and, and Mark, if you're still. Very much for for calling in because then you could talk because <laughs> clearly I couldn't. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate him. I appreciate your efforts to try and connect with us, and I certainly appreciate the people in the in the uh, chat room who've carried on an interesting conversation. And uh, I hope everybody has a great Thanksgiving as we move into the rest of the holiday season. Exactly, and let's hope uh, 2023 uh, handles us a, a better set of options and. Thank you very much, everybody, for for putting up with our communications issues. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving and a great Navy Day. Cheers. i
Hello? <laughs> 